Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, Why It Is the First Testament. So turning your Bibles to Acts 13, 13 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Those of you who have followed my ministry for some time now, you've heard me speak about the Old Testament as the First Testament. And you might wonder why I do that. Perhaps I'm just seeking to do something novel. And furthermore, if I had my druthers, I'd also change the name New Testament to the Final Testament. Yeah, the First Testament and the Final Testament. Well, that would suit me just fine. Again, am I just trying to be novel? Well, actually, no. And since this is a series about Jesus going global and the missionary mandate of the church, I think it right and just that as we study Acts 13 to 15 that we ask, what has all this to do with the missionary mandate? So let's start at the beginning. I don't prefer the term Old Testament because in the minds of many people, the word old, well, that's a synonym for outdated. You have an old computer, you've got an old fridge, an old lawnmower, time to get rid of them. And in truth, that is how many Christians think about the first 39 books of their Bible. And I hear it, and so have you. They'll say, oh, that's just in the Old Testament, and they mean it doesn't apply. And when it comes to the New Testament, well, now it's hard to call something new, you know, after it's been around for 2,000 years. So I like the words, the final testament, because it indicates that we're to expect no further divine revelation after this one. Once Jesus has come, God has spoken his final word. Well, I've gotten that off my chest. But again, what does all that have to do with Acts 13 to 15 and the missionary mandate of the church? Well, part of the answer has to do with the methodology we'll find as we study these chapters. Paul, as we'll see, in whatever place he went, first went and sought out the local Jewish synagogue, so he started his ministry there. Listen as Paul explains himself in Romans 1.16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because the gospel came from the Jew, Paul thought, and rightly so, that he had an obligation to preach to the Jew first. But if he were to preach the gospel to the Jew and then treat the Jewish Bible as if it were an outdated document, I don't think a Jew would have listened to him. And so to preach the gospel to the Jew, well, it meant that Paul would use the Jewish Bible to show them that the Jewish Bible laid the groundwork for the introduction to Jesus. That was his methodology. You know, but we might say, look, that's a great history lesson, but that was the methodology for Paul, the one that worked in his day. I mean, we're now 2,000 years out from that, and a very clear line of demarcation has been formed between Judaism and Christianity. And besides, most places where the gospel goes, in Africa and Asia, to unreached communities in the Americas and elsewhere, well, they don't have the same strong Jewish population that Paul would have found in Asia Minor and in Greece in his day. Yeah, of course. But there's a principle here. When we talk of the Christian faith, what are we talking about? In other words, when we present the gospel of Jesus globally to all people groups on the face of the earth, what is the nature of that gospel? Or how old is our faith? Is it a new thing only 2,000 years old? See, I think many do think so. And so when thinking about the relationship that human beings have to the divine, 
people tend to think about it in terms of, well, the evolution of religion. Early on, you have nature religions, and later you have the appearance of monotheism with the belief of one God, and you know some thought he was vengeful and demanding, and finally comes Jesus. He's the great innovator of religion, and he introduces us to a new idea of a merciful and kind God. Well, truth be told, a great many so-called Christians have unwittingly bought into that false idea. But that idea is hardly an idea for the nations. And even if you think it is, well now, it's simply then a matter of time until another religious innovator comes along. So with this way of thinking, you know, one no longer has the idea of God revealing himself once for all, of his word being the final word. You know, in its place is what many have called this progressive view of Christianity and of religion in general. But this idea never produces a call to missions. So let's get back to the First Testament. According to it, how old is our faith? And the answer is, it's so old, it goes all the way back to creation and to the creation of the first human pair and then of the human race. Our faith is as old and as new as it can be. And that's where we catch up to Paul. He goes to the Jew first because he knows and he believes that they have a sacred and inspired tradition. They have a book which he affirms as being ever relevant, a book that starts at creation and ends with the creator entering into the human race. So let's pick up our study in Acts. Up till now, Paul and Barnabas, having been commissioned by the church in Antioch, Syria, have left to go on a first missionary trip. They set out for the port city of Cilicia, caught a ship for the island of Cyprus, and after preaching in the synagogues throughout the island, they eventually ended up in the capital city of Paphos, where by the power of the Holy Spirit, they brought the Roman proconsul to faith in Christ. And so let's pick up the action from there. And here I'm coming to Acts 13, 13 to 15. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, we've already noted that Paul and Barnabas have taken an assistant along. His name is John or also John Mark. Luke, the author of this book, tells us that after their ministry in Cyprus is over, they set sail from the capital city of Paphos on the western end of the island of Cyprus, and they board a ship and they sail north to the city of Perga. Luke then adds that Perga, in case you didn't know it, well, it's located in the Roman province of Pamphylia. If you think about it in our terms, I mean, you want to imagine the nation of Turkey today and then imagine that at the time of Paul, Turkey was not one nation, but it was rather a series of regions divided into a number of Roman administrative districts or provinces. And Pamphylia was one of them. And Perga was a seaport city. And Luke also seems to indicate they spent very little time there, but they simply used the arrival at that city as the first step in their journey. They're on their way to Antioch in Pisidia. Well, to the untrained eye, this sounds confusing. I mean, weren't Paul and Barnabas sent out from the city of Antioch in Syria? Well, yeah, they were. But think of it in our terms. You know, in the U.S., there's a Portland, Oregon. There's a Portland, Maine. Or think of it as a Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, as well as a Vancouver, Washington. Same thing here. Paul and Barnabas are on their way to Antioch in Pisidia, and Pisidia is a region in that area. 
Now, a little word about getting from Perga to Antioch. It would have been a very difficult trip. The, the road would follow a river and would climb into the mountains. And for our purposes, what should catch our eye is that this route was known to be dangerous because of local bandits, and they were known to attack and rob travelers in the narrow mountain passes. So I make mention of all of that, even though Luke does not. What Luke does mention is that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Again, Luke doesn't tell us why. I mean, some suggest that he was just homesick and others that he was afraid, still others that he might have been sick. That's all speculation. What we do know is that his departure didn't sit very well with Paul. See, what we do know is that in Acts chapter 15, as Paul and Barnabas are preparing their second missionary journey, they came to quite a dispute regarding whether or not they should take John Mark with them. Luke tells us that Paul definitely didn't want to take him. And his reasons, John Mark said Paul had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, not with permission, not because the missionary team thought that was the best strategy, but rather he decided most likely on his own that's what he wanted to do. And so, lacking their assistant, Paul and Barnabas press on. It's now the Sabbath day. Pisidian Antioch had a Jewish population that would have been there for more than 300 years. And it must have been of a considerable size. Synagogues became places of learning and study. There were also resources to anyone who had needs. And furthermore, in Jewish communities, the synagogue was allowed to administer some legal matters, and so it served as a Jewish court of law. It was the center of Jewish life. And now it's the Sabbath, and Paul and Barnabas enter the synagogue. And Luke accurately describes the worship service. The First Testament scriptures would have been read, most likely here, from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the First Testament. Luke describes them as reading from the Law and the Prophets, which would have meant a portion from the Pentateuch and then from another part of the scripture. And following that, there would have been a sermon. And it was the custom in most synagogues that when a noted rabbi was in town, the synagogue rulers would invite the visiting dignitary, if he would like, on the spot to give a sermon. No doubt Paul had been anticipating that would happen, and he was ready. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at one 800 663-2425. I have at several points in my life been called upon to preach while I was sitting in a service. The one particular memory I have of that is, you know, while I was in Egypt, it was Good Friday. I was delighted to be in an Egyptian church among believers whose language and culture I didn't understand, but whose Jesus I did understand. And then I was told while I was sitting there, 
I was to preach the sermon. I was told that while we were singing the second hymn of the day. Paul, I think, was not as surprised as I was. He anticipated it. He was ready. So let's listen to what he said. I'm reading here from Acts 13, 16 to 23. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, as you're no doubt aware, this is but the beginning of the sermon. And furthermore, if you've read through the entire sermon, you'll soon realize if this was the full transcript of everything Paul said that day, well, it's a very short sermon indeed. You know, I read it through not quickly and timed my reading with a stopwatch, and it takes about three minutes to read. Now, assuming that Paul preached for more than three minutes, I'm therefore also assuming that Luke is giving us just the basic outline of Paul's sermon, that that is the key elements, that we might understand what he was getting at. But from my study of the sermon, I can see that Paul had at least three points. The first is that in the First Testament, it naturally leads to Jesus. The second point is the description of what happened in the Jesus event. And third is the application, or as we might call it, the altar call, the call to repent and believe. Now, for our purpose today, we're only going to consider Paul's first point. He begins by pointing out that a proper study of the entire First Testament naturally leads to Jesus. And so Paul begins by motioning with his hand. You know, worship services often had a short intermission. Lots of talking would be going on. And when it was time now for the sermon, Paul motions with his hand. I'm ready to speak. You know, we can imagine people grabbing their seats, but they're still talking. And over the din, Paul is crying out, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen to me. The reference to those who fear God is Paul's reference to his recognition that there are Gentiles in that synagogue as well. Jews and Gentiles. I'm ready to speak. So everyone pipe down. Now, verses 17 to 20a begins with a story of the First Testament from Abraham to Moses. And if you don't know it, all of the First Testament surrounds itself with three central figures. First is Abraham, the second is Moses, the third is David. And all three of these Paul mentions. God chose our fathers, he says. Notice Israel became a nation for no other reason than God, in his sovereign will and design, chose this people. Perhaps Paul was quoting, you know, from Deuteronomy 10:15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Or maybe he even made reference to what Joshua said in Joshua 24, 2 and 3. Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And that's it. 
It's not that Abraham chose God. It was that God chose Abraham. And that's what Israel was. They were the nation chosen by God. And next, Paul moves to the time of Moses, and he speaks now of Israel and Egypt, how they became, you know, a great number of people. There were many of them. And he then speaks of the Exodus, how God delivered Israel out of the house of slavery. Paul uses the phrase, with uplifted hand, he led them out. He's using biblical language. You know, the uplifted hand refers to God's strong arm, the the arm of his power that's raised up now in defense of the people that he has chosen. Next, Paul mentions the wilderness wanderings, and then he mentions how Israel was in that wilderness 40 years. You know, it may have been that at this point, Paul mentioned the sin of Kadesh Barnea, the sin of failing to believe the promise of God and why it was that that entire generation perished in the wilderness. Next, he takes the story to the promised land. And here, Paul mentions the seven nations who inhabited the promised land, the nations that Israel had defeated. And by the way, if you don't know those seven nations, they were the the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So not all of them were immediately destroyed. I mean, in time, David would finish off the Jebusites, for instance. But but Paul mentions that all of this took 450 years. It's, It's a round number. It starts with Jacob and his family entering Egypt to the Exodus, to the desert journey, to the conquest of the land. And yeah, if we do the math, Paul's right. And then Paul goes on. After these things, God gave them judges. Ah, yeah. After having seen the miracles through Moses and on to Joshua, Israel then abandoned God. They went after the idolatrous gods of the nations around them, and they entered into a period of the dark ages. But in spite of her sin, Israel remained the people of God. God was intervening and sending judges, says Paul. Yeah, the judges, everyone from Othniel to Samson to the time of Samuel, who had come to restore a desperately fallen nation. And then Paul mentions that time as Samuel the prophet had had become an old man. How Israel, afraid they would again descend into the, the chaos of the dark ages that still threatened them. I thought their only hope lay not in a repentant spirit, but in finding a king to keep the chaos at bay. And so Paul next takes his listeners to the time of King Saul. Well, it's both a a story of promise and mercy, and it's also a story of tragedy and disappointment and rampant sin and defeat at the hand of the Philistines. This went on, Paul says, for 40 years. So it's a story of a king who became a madman and his insane desire to kill the young man whom he saw as a rival. It's a story that could very easily have caused the nation to descend into the chaos of civil war. And had David not been determined to continually bless the mad king, that would have been the outcome. But eventually, it was not David who dethroned Saul. It was the Philistines who did it on the battlefield. A king who failed to trust in God was eventually destroyed. But Paul says, really, it wasn't the Philistines who destroyed Saul, but it was God who removed him. It was God who raised up David, and that was a man after God's own heart. And finally, after so many years of chaos, Paul says, you know, if left to their own devices, Israel would have remained in that chaos until eventually their enemies would have ultimately destroyed them. See, in giving this sermon, Paul's reminding his audience that the people may have raised up Saul, but God raised up David. Now, in giving all this storyline of the First Testament, Paul's leading up to one central point. Israel chosen by God, and yet Israel always sinful, always ready to turn from God. Had it not been for David, Israel wouldn't exist. 
But Israel does exist because God chose David and didn't let Israel go. And then since this is the story of the First Testament, Paul's leading up to this central point. The God who would save Israel from her sins through David has kept his promise to David. God promised David, found in 2 Samuel 7, that one of his descendants would be the long-expected Messiah who would forever save Israel from sin. And then seamlessly, this is where Paul introduces Jesus. He calls him the offspring of David, no doubt. Paul would have produced Jesus' resume, how he is a direct descendant of David. And just like David, Jesus had come to save Israel from the same problems that had always bedeviled her. Paul calls Jesus Savior. See, up until now, Paul has pointed out that, if anything, two themes are woven into the Hebrew Scriptures. The first is that Israel is God's chosen nation and that God is determined never to let Israel go. And the second theme is that Israel is a sinful nation and she was therefore subject to God's judgment. Had it not been for the story of saviors, whether it was Moses saving his people from slavery or the judges saving the people from idolatry and lawlessness or David saving the people from all the enemies that would have destroyed them, God's saviors had prevented Israel from ruin. And that's the story of Jesus, the ultimate savior. It tells us today that the one true religion is the religion that presents God as the one who chooses a people that are unworthy of him. It's the story of a God who provides a savior that without him, there would be no people at all. That is the one historic faith always true from the beginning of the ages. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, why is the story of the First Testament so vital for the believer today? Yeah, I mean, just want to repeat that. I mean, you know, it is important for us to remember that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we have in the First Testament, and that when we read our New Testament, I mean, there are, I don't know, 600 and more um, just simply quotes of the First Testament and an explanation of what they mean in the light of Jesus. So we're constantly saying that this is the fulfillment of the one true faith that was from the very beginning of all creation. Uh, this is not a new faith. This is the faith that has come to its fulfillment and its completion in the person of Jesus. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's one 866 
336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.